Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. How do you see yourself building on the lives of your ancestors? Oh gosh, this is so hard question. By first learning about my ancestors. You know, I've never really thought about it, but I thank you for bringing it up because now I think I'm gonna look into it. Success for the family and to keep positive legacy for the family would be a quick answer. Um, funny you should ask that. I wish I could show you my shirt that says I make my ancestors proud. That's what I say. And a lot of people ask me, what does that mean? And I say, by the way that I carry myself, the things that I do today. I'm going on a cruise tomorrow. And I tell people that this time on this cruise, I am no longer cargo. I am a passenger. So I make my ancestors proud. And there's so many different other things that I do. And I carry that on to my children and my grandchildren and to whoever I run across. It's Notes from America. I'm Janae Pierre, in for Kai Wright. Putting a pen to paper to write about Black liberation was risky in the 60s, to say the least. Our guest today summoned the bravery to do that by leaning on a strong ancestral foundation, and her writing is all the stronger for it. Nikki Giovanni is the subject of a new documentary that takes us back in time and through space, revealing the influence of one of America's most treasured poets. It's called Going to Mars. The Nikki Giovanni Project. The film spotlights her legacy and celebrates her early work, which provided a strong, militant, unapologetically black perspective. Like in this poem called Ego Trippin'. I was born in the Congo. I walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every 100 years falls into the center, giving divine, perfect light. I am bad. I sat on the throne drinking nectar with a lot. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to cool my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert. With a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes, I crossed it in two hours. I am a gazelle, so swift, so swift, you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Hannibal an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength flows ever on. Nikki Giovanni, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Let's start with how you got into your work. You have said of yourself, quote, My dream was not to publish or to even be a writer. My dream was to discover something no one else had thought of. I guess that's why I'm a poet. We put things together in ways no one else does, end quote. At the time that you first started writing, what were the things that you were looking to put together that no one else had done just yet? Well, I'm, I'm always interested in history, and I've been interested in how the enslaved created actually what I've now recognized uh, the term as a library, because the spirituals are libraries. They tell the story of how these people came over, created a language, because you have to remember that there were many different languages in the African communities that were put together and brought over here and enslaved. 
they made a way of telling the story and passing the story along. And since they were not allowed to read or write or create books or anything, they learned to do it through song. I just thought that was fabulous. And, you know, you start to think about, well, how did this happen and how did that happen? <laughs> you know, you begin to understand, oh, well, one, it, it's not hard to understand that these were great people, but it's um, interesting to know that somehow or another, and as we look at, uh, for example, early rap, as we look at Tupac, we realize that he's standing on the shoulders of his ancestors. Yeah. And and we'll get to your thug life tattoo later in the interview. So just wait for that. But um, in an interview in your late 20s, you said your work was aimed at moving black narratives and liberation forward, not, you know, as an opposition or reaction to whiteness, but you wanted to create a revolution that came from black goodness, right? Um, black goodness that was rooted in the personal stories of yourself and your family that really showed that black people were inherently good people. And that's in the first few minutes of this film. Why was that such an important space for you to function from in a time when, you know, it would have been very understandable if your anger came as a reaction to the violence of whiteness in the U.S. during that time? Well, I really think that uh, <clears throat> you always have to know your audience. And to me, I wanted to talk to Black Americans. I wrote uh, my first important poem was called Nikki Rosa. And I really hope no white person ever has cause to write about me. Because they never understand Black love is Black wealth. And they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and never understand that all the while I was quite happy. But I didn't think that it was my job to have them to understand that. I think that my job was to remind Black people that Black love is Black wealth. So we're not going to chase a green dollar bill. We're going to chase Black love. That was what was important. Jimmy Baldwin and I talked about that. That was what was important, who you're talking to and why you're talking to them. One of the other things that comes up quite a bit in this film is that you've always had a deep attachment to music, specifically spirituals. To you, they're an important part of Black liberation and resistance. Where did that love and understanding of music start? I'm lucky, and my generation is lucky, because we were churchgoers. And many of us, if not most of us, lived with our grandparents. And our grandparents believed in, in going to church. So Sunday morning, you got up and you went to church. But what you heard in church was the spirituals. And eventually the spirituals, as you know, are going to evolve into gospel. So there's going to end up being a beat. But as we started going to church, we actually were just dealing with the spirituals. And those who know music can identify now about 1,100 spirituals. And yet in that 1,100 spirituals that we can identify, not one of them calls for revenge. Not one of them calls for any level of, of, of harm to other people. So hearing that every Sunday in church, it became a part of you. It, it made sense to you. And why wouldn't it make sense? You know, I, I've always loved leaning on the everlasting arms. Can mm. you imagine you're a slave mm. and, and you're creating this song? And as we know, mo most of these spirituals have been stolen. The uh, copyrights have been stolen from us. But it was the slaves who, 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 who created that, who, who said, no, this is what I'm going to do. And I love that I'm going to lean on the everlasting arms, not not today or tomorrow, but the everlasting arms. 
Now you're going to end up with somebody like Irvin Berlin, and I'm not against Mr. Berlin, who's going to say, you know, I'm going to love you like nobody's love you. Come rain and shine. And he goes, away. not for today, not for the week, but for always. And that's just the same thing as the everlasting arms. He did. Mr. Berlin heard what black people were singing and turned it into something that he could make out of it. I'm not against him. I'm just saying that that's what happened. If you look at Mr. Gershwin, George Gershwin, summertime, that's 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 black people singing. He went down to Charleston and he spent over a year listening to what black people had to say and how we had to say it. I think it's fabulous. When was the last time you were moved by an old spiritual? I'm moved by them constantly. Uh, Javon Jackson and I just did an album. He named it, I didn't call it, The Gospel According to Nikki Giovanni. But the one song on it is actually not a uh, gospel tune, but uh, it's in fact a song called Night Song, because Nina Simone was a good friend of mine, and that was one of her favorite songs. And Night Song, again, was not traditionally a spiritual, but it really is in another way of saying, you know, this is the the life that I'm leading. And of course, the line that uh, I always think of Nina when I hear it, where do I belong? I think that's just, again, you're finding a people looking for where are we and, and where do we belong? Where do we get our strength from? I think that's important. I feel sorry for the kids, by the way, who don't go to church because um, I think they're missing a lot of our history. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I grew up in the church. I often tell people now, even in this post-pandemic world, I still miss going to church. Virtual church doesn't hit the same. That's true. Early in your career, no one wanted to publish you. You said that no one was interested in a Black girl writing militant poetry. So you were able to actually publish yourself. Tell me about that. What was that process like back then? Well, I was uh, living in New York because I had a scholarship to Columbia University and I was working on a book. And uh, it wasn't that I was rejected, it's that I simply thought no one cared. If you think no one cares, then why do you ask? I mean, I didn't want to submit my work to a publisher and they would reject it. That didn't make sense. I was living uptown, but I knew some people who were living in the village and I knew several young men, as it were, who were working for bigger companies, but they published, they had printing presses. It was a question of asking them, what would I need to do in order to have, say, a hundred books? And and explaining that, well, a hundred books would cost them um, however much they decided it would cost. And then I thought, okay, we can do that because if I can come up with a hundred books for a hundred dollars, then I can, um, if I'm reasonable and I, I try to be, and I would say this to anybody, separate your business from your creativity. Once you do that, then you've got a business. You've got a small business, but I thought if I could get a hundred books, I could sell them for a dollar a piece and I could break even. But, and it's a big but, on the next hundred books, it would only cost me $50 because the plates had already been made. So then I could sell another hundred books for the same dollar, but I would be $50 to the good. Now, anybody that knows anything about poetry knows you're never going to be rich if you're a poet. So I never thought, oh, I'm going to make money doing this. I just thought I'm going to find a way to keep breaking even. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, looking back at that now, what did it mean to not wait for a publisher or wait for someone to, you know, do that for you, to get your message and your book out there? I just didn't see the point. I mean, it's a different world now. And so the youngsters come up and they, well, they make money. They went about it very differently. I think we just wanted to be able to say what we believed and what we thought was important. And we found various ways through the churches, through the communities. We found a bunch of ways to have our say. 
Let's talk about how the film was made because you share so many pieces of your life with us and I'm truly grateful for it. How did Joe Brewster and Michelle Alexander gain access to you? Because I know you don't really like people. <laughs> so what did it take to trust them? How was this whole experience? Well, they called and asked Jenny, who runs my calendar, we'd like to do this film on Nikki. What do you think? And she thought it'd be a good idea. And I said, no, because documentaries are, are done when people are dead. You know, I, I'm not young, but I'm not I'm not that old. But I called my attorney and I've known Gloria longer than anybody on earth. And I said, well, Jenny wants to do it. But what are you thinking? She said, oh, yeah, you have to do it. And so I was outvoted. My office is run by three people and two of them just outvoted me. So it was like, OK, what I did was I stepped back. And I think that that was the most important thing that happened to going to Mars. And I said, OK, if we're going to let them do it, then let them do it. I play cards, by the way. I play a game called Bid Whist. And teaching people to play the game, they said, what do you think is the most important thing? And I said, trusting your partner. No matter what it is, you have to trust your partner. And in something like creating this documentary, I had to trust them. If I didn't trust them, then I should have stopped it. Coming up, more of my conversation with Nikki Giovanni. She'll share why book bans bothered her when they first rolled out in some schools. And it's not for the reason you may assume. That's just ahead. We start where it began. In the life of a captive, life never got better. From the dungeons in Ghana to New England's primary slave port, Boston, birthplace of liberty, was also the first colony to legalize slavery. As our nation struggles with the question of reparations, we look at how this long overdue reckoning is unfolding in the city that sparked the American Revolution. From GBH News, I'm Soraya Wintersmith. Join me for What is Owed, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Janae Pierre, in for Kai Wright. My guest is renowned poet, activist, and educator, Nikki Giovanni. And I asked her to give us a special reading of a poem that inspired the title of a new documentary about her life. The poem is Quilting the Black-Eyed Pea, We're Going to Mars. We're going to Mars because Perry couldn't go to the North Pole without Matthew Henson because Chicago couldn't be a city without John Baptiste de Sabo, because George Washington Carver and his peanut were the right partners for Booker T. It's a life-seeking thing. We're going to Mars because whatever is wrong with us will not get right with us. So we journey forth, carrying the same baggage, but every now and then leaving one little bitty thing behind. Maybe drop torturing hunchbacks here. Maybe drop lynching Billy Bird there. Maybe not whipping Uncle Tom to death. Maybe resisting global war. That whole poem came from the fact that we had Africans being brought across a, a ocean, which they didn't know all the way on the other side. So they were coming from someplace they knew through someplace they did not know, to someplace they didn't know. And I had a realization, that's what space travel is. Going from someplace we know, which is Earth, through someplace we don't know, which is the galaxy, to something we haven't been at, and that would be Mars or Jupiter or Saturn or wherever it is we land. And I thought, oh, so we need Black people to teach Earth how to find its way through the galaxy. 
And maybe if finding our way through the galaxy, we'll find our way to how to get along on Earth. I want to talk a bit more about this comparison of space exploration to the Middle Passage. Did watching space travel help you understand your own experience as a Black woman in the U.S. in a new way? I've always loved space. I've always loved the stars. I, I shared a bedroom with my sister, and I don't know why, but she wanted the inside bed that was closer to, to the, the rest of the house and gave me the bed with the, the window because it only had one, the bedroom only had one window. And I would just sit and look at the stars and I would think, well, you know, they're saying something. I'm not into physics. I'm not a scientist. But I kept thinking every night, if I can see the stars, they're telling me something. So the question is, how do you how do you listen to the stars? How do you see what they're trying to say? How do you find your way into the stars? And if you found your way there, what would you find? You know, part of your work now is attempting to get more black women involved in space exploration and physics more broadly. Why is black women's participation in space so important to you? Well, black American women are about the only people that get along with everybody. You can you can take a black American woman and she will find a way to get along with everybody. So I know if we can get along with everybody on Earth, we'll be able to get along with everybody in space or in the galaxy, I should say. And I've always laughed because black women, the first thing, uh, I don't know about you and your grandmother, but my grand, the first thing that they say to you, you meet a black American woman. The first thing she says is, come on, baby, are you hungry? Because the first thing she does is feed you. I can see a black American woman in space running into another life form and saying that, you know, come on, baby, are you are you hungry? Come on in. And of course, feeding them and giving them something to drink and then saying, where are you from? Oh, who are you? You know, where you go to school? You know how black women, they, they treat you everybody the same. And I yeah. love us for that. And I think that that's so important to think about where are we from? We're from Earth and we bring that pride and that love with us. And we don't mind meeting people. Black American women are not afraid of anything. And when we look at the civil rights movement, I have a great respect for Dr. King, as does the world. But it was Rosa Parks who said, no, I'm, I'm not getting up. Knowing that, that her life was going to be threatened and knowing that she had stood a good chance, actually, of being killed. But it was Miss Parks. Once the bus boycott started, it was the women who got up before dawn and made lunch for the men so that they did not have to get on the bus to go to get their lunch. It was the women who did that. We, we forget. And we, when we look at Black Lives Matter, to bring it up to date, mm -hmm. it was three women who said, no, Black Lives Matter. And they took that, that, that concept and that understanding. That's gone around the globe. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So we can certainly bring that same energy to Mars, right? Yeah. Along with a six pack of beer, as you mentioned in the film. <laughs> I don't drink beer, but my mother did. And even for me, who doesn't like it, it's, it's even a question of, you know, well, yeah, let's have a beer because there's something friendly about that. There's something that you can meet people with a beer that you can't meet them any other way. Yeah, absolutely. In the documentary, you mentioned that you had a complicated relationship with your dad, Gus, and that influenced your understanding of Black men particularly watching the relationship between your parents. Um, you even said this of your parents' relationship, quote, it was a stormy relationship at some points, but we know that deprivation gives us stormy relationships, end quote. What did that mean to you? I finally had to realize that their marriage was none of my business. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, you... Yeah. 
And I know people who parents have gotten divorced and they've been upset about it. And you say, well, what are you upset about? You weren't married to either one of them. And uh, there are things that some things are your business and some things aren't. And it was difficult dealing with my father. So the best thing to do was for one of us to leave. And since this was his home and his wife, <laughs> though I was his child, he didn't own me. So I was able to go and live with my grandmother, which I was very proud of. And uh, I lived with grandmother until I went to college. And that was very good. Ultimately, uh, he had a stroke. And I was, uh, oh, I think about 33 or 34. I really forget the year. But he had a stroke and mommy called me and said, you know, your father had a stroke. And I was like, you know, wow. So I realized she didn't call me because of his stroke. She called me because she needed a daughter. So I moved back home. But I just didn't want to live in his house. So I thought the best thing we can do to make me happy now is for me to buy a house, which is what I did. I bought a house and I said to him, well, we're moving. And he said, I don't want to move. I said, I'm you know, fine and stay here. But mommy and my son, Thomas, and the dog and I are moving and we're moving into my house. And I thought that it was important that he understood that. So when we moved, the situation changed and it became my house. And since it was my house, it ran by my rules. And that was kind of important because it made everybody happy. Yeah. You know, you wrote this poem, I Married My Mother. At what point did you indeed marry your mother? Uh, when she called me that day. I used to say that to mommy, though. I said, you know, I don't know why I, after he, Gus was dead. And I said, you know, you should have married me. And she said, well, then I, if I had married you, how would I have gotten you? And I said, I don't know. You know, we're smart. We would have figured something out. Uh, I laughed with her about it because essentially mommy and I lived together for the last uh, 20 years of her life. And essentially that's who I was married to was my mother. 20 years. That's a healthy marriage. It worked because mommy knew that there, I wasn't interested in opinion. I don't like opinions. I still don't. And I knew that she wasn't interested in my judgment and I don't judge and I still don't. So we got along very well. Yeah. You know, I want to talk a bit about matriarchy and motherhood. You got a tattoo in honor of Afeni Shakur, Tupac's mother. And I told you we come back to that thug life tattoo. So can you tell me about that tattoo and your relationship with Afeni? Well, you know, when, when he was shot and it was one of those things you you kind of know that somebody was probably going to try to kill Tupac because he was too important. And mm -hmm. we're still um, talking about Tupac. There are a lot of rappers that we've totally forgotten who are totally unimportant. And we are still talking about what, what Tupac tried to do. And when he was shot, I worried because I thought, oh, it's a good chance he's not going to pull through. And Pac is the same uh, age as, as my son, Thomas. So I had some idea of what it might feel like for Afeni to be losing her son. And there's nothing you can do. I mean, you, you can say, oh, I'm really sorry, or what do they say? We're going to keep you in our thoughts and prayers. Nobody wants to hear that crap because you're losing your, your child. So there was nothing that I wanted to say, but I was trying to think of something to do. And I thought, oh, well, Pocky had a thug life tattoo across his abdomen. Well, I'm too old to have anything across my abdomen, but I thought I'll, I'll put a thug life tattoo on my, and I ended up putting it on my arm. I was going to put it on, on my face, but my mother said, well, if you put it on your face, you won't be able to see it. And I, oh, you're right, I won't. And I did want to be able to see it. So it's on my left arm here. I didn't know that, that Affinity would ever know that I had it because I didn't know her, but someone took a photo of it and somehow it got put in the New York Times. And so she saw it and wrote me a really just lovely note thanking me for 
for loving her son. And and I thought, yeah, of course I do. And I wasn't the only, I'm not the only one who, who loved him. And uh, of course, uh, uh, Fanny was a, a Black Panther, an important person. So all of this, uh, you know, comes together with what we hope our children can do. This is a big one, and we're getting towards the end of our conversation here, but this is something that really triggers me, and that's book bans. Now, we're going to get into that, but I quickly want to talk about your new children's book. Um, In September of last year, you had a new book come out called A Library. On top of all of your poetry that, you know, a lot of us have read and studied during our college years, you've written quite a few children's books. What drew you to that type of writing? Well, first of all, I really love a library. That's a wonderful book. And I wrote it for my grandmother. But um, no book should be banned. It, it's, it's just that simple. Because the innocent cannot be corrupted. So somebody said, oh, they're doing uh, sexual things. Uh, you know, this book has too much sex in it. Well, the non-sexual children don't know that. And I remember um, my grandparents, and I'm, I'm writing about that. My grandparents were really wonderful people. My grandfather would sit, I would wash dishes when I lived with him. And grandpapa would sit with me and tell me stories. And one day he said to me, you know, Nikki, I only wanted to kiss your grandmother. And I'm washing dishes and thinking, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, that only, you know, he only wanted to kiss her once. What's the big deal? But she would always say, John Brown, that was his name. John Brown, if I had let you kiss me, you would have never married me. And I thought, well, Colleen, you know, I, I, I kissed her and we're not married. I was too young. You cannot corrupt the innocent. I was old before I realized that that was a metaphor, <laughs> and that it wasn't kissing that he had in mind. And I had to laugh about it because you cannot corrupt the innocent. And one of the things that people are trying to block from the books is, is what some of the things that happen. Our, our governor here in, in Virginia is saying, well, you know, nobody wants to read about slavery. It upsets the, the, the youngsters. Well, it didn't upset the youngsters as much as it upset the people who were enslaved. And of course, white people should know that they did that because they did. And it's not a big deal. It's just it was done. And you can't hide it because somehow somebody wants to say, well, we didn't mean it. Of course you meant it. It's just like you, you the, the policeman, if you put your, your knee on somebody's neck and they can't, can't breathe, of course. Of yeah. course, those policemen meant to kill that young man. Of course they did. And they should have to hear about it. You can't keep saying, well, I'm not going to talk about it and it'll go away. The two men who murdered Emmett Till, of course, and, and his mother, Mrs. Till, the best thing that happened was that she said, I want the world to see what they did to my son. And by showing the world, if somebody had said, and many people did, oh, don't show that, close that casket, it'll upset people. It didn't upset people as much as it upset Emmett to be beaten to death and as much as it upset Mamie to have to look at her son. So why shouldn't you have to hear that this was done? As we talk about libraries um, and the importance of books at a young age, we have to talk about the recent book banning in the U.S. and in Florida. As a writer, I'm sure that it's been so hard for you to watch. And in fact, your books have also been banned from the education system in Florida. I'm wondering, how did it feel to see that happen? Well, first, let me be honest. When they started banning books, 
I thought, well, banned books are a bad idea. The Nazis did that. Everybody knows, you know, mm-hmm. they had the big night. They burned the books. And we know that people burn books because as Louis Michaud, who owned the uh, National Memorial Library, said, um, he said, black is beautiful, but knowledge is power. And we can see that every time a dictatorship wants to come in, they ban or burn books. And so when, they, when it started with DeSantis in Florida and they're, they're, they're banning books, and I'm saying, you know, well, I guess I'm going to get banned. And then none of my books got banned. Toni Morrison's books got banned. Alice Walker's got books. People I knew, their books were being banned. <laughs> were you jealous? My books should be banned. I, I mean, I talk about people. What is it? I, I started to write and write them. You know, why aren't you banning my books? I, I write really terrible books. But um, <laughs> I thought, well, perhaps I shouldn't do that. I had to laugh at myself. I told some friends, I said, I, don't, I do not understand why they're not banning my books. But then about a, a month later, I got banned and was like, yeah, OK, <laughs> so I, that's important. You know, you, if they're going to ban books, you want to be on the side of those who are being banned. Yeah. But we laughed about it. You have to laugh at some of this stuff because uh, as they are banned books, there are people who are hiding books right mm-hmm. now. There are people who are putting books away so that the Nazis in Florida are the Nazis in Germany or wherever you find a bunch of Nazis who are trying to ban books. The, the school boards here, in, I live here in Virginia, who are trying to ban books. There are other people who are putting books away, who are hiding the books so that their children and their children's friends can come by and read them. We, we know this. there's a history of that, too. But it's just really, you know, you have to laugh because if you don't laugh at some of these people, they'll make you crazy. Yeah, for sure. Are you worried about the impact those bannings will have on the next generation, be it black kids or brown kids? I worry more about what happens to white kids because the black kids are going to get and will get and will always get the story. And we started this conversation, if you recall, with the enslaved telling their story through the spirituals and through those spirituals building a musical, really, library but they were able to pass the story down. We will always pass our stories down. It's the white kids that don't know what's going on. And then as they find out, oh my goodness, look at look at what we've become. Then they're the ones that have to correct it. I absolutely love it when you say, I'm just a poet, no one's gonna listen to me. But you're a legendary poet and I'm sure you hear that far too many times. But you're also a teacher and you have been for a while. Is that a lane that you always saw yourself in? I think that it's just important. And I think that I'm just a poet because it keeps me from being made crazy. It keeps me from thinking, oh, I'm important. It keeps me from thinking, well, I better hurry up. When, when I go to a book signing, I will be there until the last person who wants something signed gets it signed. And people will say, oh, you know, you got to go. They're waiting for you. They want to give you dinner. They want, hey, I don't care. The person who was at the back of the line has stood there and mm-hmm. I'm going to stand there. I'm going to be there until that line is empty. And that's what you do. You, you do your duty. Nikki Giovanni is the subject of the new documentary, Going to Mars, The Nikki Giovanni Project. For those in New York City, you can see the film now exclusively at Film Forum. It'll be on HBO in the coming months. Nikki, it was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you very much.
just ahead, another black woman cementing her place in history. Meet ethical fashion activist Kimberly McLawn in conversation with Kai Wright. That's next. My name is Rahima and I help produce the show. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. Finally, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for both is notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. This is Notes from America with Kai Wright. I'm Janae Pierre, in for Kai, who brings us a special conversation from the intersection of fashion and history. I've got these old photos of my grandparents that I really enjoy. Literally sepia-toned snapshots taken in the 60s when they're about my age, you know? Kids out of the house, looking relaxed and proud of their many accomplishments in life. Or, I don't know, that's what I imagine they're thinking about anyway. I mean, who knows what's actually on their minds? It's so easy to romanticize somebody else's past. But I bring up these photos because, for some reason, when I look at them, my eyes are always drawn to their clothes. To my grandmother's long, sleeveless A-line dresses, my grandfather's tight, clipped ties, the sturdy fabrics. And I just, I do not know why I am so fixated on their fashion choices. But I met someone recently who shares this curiosity. I am Dr. Kimberly McGlawn. I'm the founder and CEO of Grant Boulevard, my first company, and Black Ivy Thrift. These are both fashion businesses, and I visited Kimberly at her Black Ivy store in West Philadelphia to learn about the relationship between fashion, justice, and our history as Black Americans. The conversation is part of an ongoing series we are calling Black History Is Now. We are in a neighborhood that used to be called the Black Bottom, actually. It's a a part of Philadelphia's history that is not often talked about. It used to be a, a predominantly black neighborhood that, you know, kind of lost its its heart through gentrification. And we are literally on the corner of what are we? 36 in Lancaster. So we put ourselves in a historical timeline. We're about four blocks away from Dr. King gave a speech to 10,000 people in 1963 advocating for for labor rights and for and for living wages. And so um, that, that history sits really front and center for me in thinking about what the significance of this project is. She gave me a tour around her small shop, which is housed in a sort of converted car garage. When the store is open, the front wall rolls up to fully open the space onto Philly's busy streets, clanging trolley and all. When you come in, you see on the walls, uh, in the stucco, a constellation of, of artifacts. There's, there's an 
copy of the 1968 uh, Life magazine capturing the decade. There's a copy of um, prints from the Library of Congress of, of figures from the era like Angela Davis and SNCC. There's a photo of Bernie Sanders, who in 1972 was working to integrate housing at the University of Chicago. I wanted people to feel like they were being transported back into, into the, the 1950s and 60s, right? I'm, amongst the artifacts I'm looking at, you know, I mean, there's James Baldwin talking to um, Nina Simone, and there are several of the iconic uh, I Am A Man posters from the Memphis uh, sanitation worker strike. Yeah. This whole thing is rooted in the civil rights movement, right? Help me understand that. Explain how this connects to that history. For this particular project, I wanted to tell a story of how style has always been a part of the way in which we communicate our values. Dr. King's decision to wear denim in the North was an intentional act of solidarity with farm workers in the South. And I wanted to bring us back into an awareness of the stories that our garments can tell. And I wanted to also reinvigorate our our energetic kind of alignment and appreciation for the, the, an era which brought about, about all of the kind of uh, pivots that we needed and that we're still fighting really, really hard. I hope there's a growing sense of urgency around preserving. The stories our garments tell. I asked Kimberly to try and show me what she meant by that. So we started picking through the clothing racks. This garment is one that you know, as I said, it captures all of the attention to detail that's that's really so central to how people were thinking about design in this era. Um, we also see a piece that I, I definitely think I would have we would have seen on Coretta Scott King. It feels like an, an autumn afternoon. This is a dress that I'm holding up that again has that darning and the eyelet, has a, a beautiful belt that is, has been preserved despite the fact that this garment is probably close to 70 years old and all the movement that a fabric like a chiffon would offer. This is a 70 year old garment. Yeah, 70 year old garment. Wow. Yeah, 70 year old garment. What, you said you probably would have seen you know, on Coretta Scott King. Yeah. Why, why do you say that? I think about the Sunday's best attire, right? That idea that when we think about iconic women like, like Credit Scott, but other her contemporaries, her peers in that moment, how they were thinking about how to use their dress outside of the work week to tell a story of dignity. And this dress conveys that. It's got this, this really elegant cinch waistline and this midi length length to the skirt. And all of that, I think, con confers a sense of, of self-possession, which I think is one of the things that Black folk in particular have always had to figure out how to navigate in a country so intent on stripping us of humanity and dignity, of self-possession, of self-ownership. And I think they were seeking to reaffirm that, right, mm -hmm. through daily wear. Mm -hmm. I, say more about that, like what that performance was for them. And it, or was it a performance? Is that the way to talk about it? I mean, I think it was a performance to the extent that many of us are using costumes or using the costuming of clothes to, to tell a story about a persona in a day or an emotionality that we feel in a day, right? And I think in this era, there was certainly a, a fashion sense that aligned with wanting to tell a story of, of, of elegance, of class, of intellect. You know, so much of my understanding of these things came from a book, Black Ivy. That's a design book put together by the London-based fashion writer Jason Jules and published in the U.S. a couple of years ago. In the book, Jules compiles and contextualizes iconic photos of Black men during the Civil Rights era wearing these classically preppy outfits. James uh, Baldwin, 
you know, um, Gordon Parks, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, how these black male creatives were thinking about how to put their own spin on Ivy style. Like very much so aware that there were these, these Ivy and ivory walls that sought to segregate them and, and still recognizing that they could do those things and make it fresh, right? That they could take those same garments and add soul. But even before Kimberly found Jason Jules's book, she had been preoccupied with the civil rights era and the way Black people just moved through space in that time, like how they physically navigated the world. And I get that. I mean, maybe it's something about being a certain age, you know, when those people, they're young versions of your parents and your grandparents. I always knew, like, you know, through my own... Um, deep respect for thinkers like James Baldwin and thinkers like Lorraine Hansberry and performers like Nina Simone. I was always hyper aware of, of, of just how challenging it was and, and remains to sit at the intersection of being black and of knowing, of being woman and of knowing. And when I say knowing, I mean to be aware of the ways in which the, all of these, these institutional structural um, apparatus work to to create a sense of defeat. And I always loved how in that era, it seemed as though there was a real vocal effort to conquer being defeated. You will not make me bow. You will not, I will not be defeated. I will not be defeated. I like the idea of being able to celebrate that in a garment. And I, and I love that spirit of, for me, of being able to, to choose a garment. Everything up leading up to the 19, the civil rights movement, late 1960s, where black folk could choose nothing. And, you know, seven days a week having no choice, not over your elected officials, no choice over the nature of your work or the relationship you'd have with your employee, your employer, excuse me, no choice over the nature of the schools your kids would go to or how well they'd be funded. And I think that, you know, fashion became one of the first visual ways that you could exercise choice. Yeah. And I love that idea of being able to play with pattern and with color and with shape and with movement and with texture and using garments as a canvas for expressing, questing for freedom. I ha I, when I look at pictures of my grandparents from, and my grandparents, but certainly both my grandfathers died. I, I didn't ever, never knew them. Mm -hmm. um, they died young. Um, but when I look at pictures of my grandparents from that time, there is something so intoxicating. They're always dressed. I mean, they're standing around the house and they are always dressed. Um, yeah. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a photo of my, my mother's mother that I keep on my, near my desk and she's got these pearls on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it's everything I know about Carrie Thompson mm -hmm. is in those pearls. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like her, mm -hmm. The quiet defiance. And I, I, to be honest, I, I, I hadn't previously really thought actively about mm -hmm. the way they were dressed mm -hmm. um, until this conversation. I want to talk about you a little bit more. Um, I want to read a phrase um, that has some meaning in your life. I just want to hear you react to it. And the quote is, you didn't lose because you weren't good enough. What you had to say wasn't what they wanted to hear. Yeah, that's, that's it's one of the most powerful moments in my relationship with my dad. I grew up on the north side of Milwaukee, like 98% of black folk in Milwaukee do. Many of us are great migration kids. Many of us come and grew up in households where our parents spoke 
like Southerners because they were the descendants of Southerners. And and as a little girl, middle schooler, one of the things I was involved in, I mean, this is in the in the early 90s, was forensics, which is like public performance. I mean, it wasn't like theater kid, but it was like theater kid Jason. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it meant that you had to commit to memory of peace and then you'd have to perform it with enthusiasm like you'd never performed it before over and over again. And the, and the piece that I chose in seventh grade, so this is the early 90s, was a, a poem about Harriet Tubman. I remember it was, uh, I printed it on mint green paper and it was, um, you know, covered in, what is that plastic thing you cover things in? The, the laminate. laminate. Yeah, yeah, the laminate. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It was laminated. Yep. And I would carry it from from place to place. And uh, and I got really good at it. I got so good at performing that piece around Milwaukee that I made it that year in seventh grade to state finals. And that meant that my dad uh, drove me to the final competition. And when we got done with it, um, I came in third. Not bad, right? Admittedly not bad, but when we left that competition on the drive home, my dad, who was, he's a bit of a poet and sometimes a little on the on the stoic side, he really didn't say very much un- until we got, you know, we got a good ways away before he shared with me that he just, it was like a random out the blue comment, a reflection. He said, you didn't come in, you didn't not come in first because you weren't the best. You didn't come in first because they weren't ready for what you had to say. Mm. And, and I, and that was, you know, that's, that's how I've always been, I feel. Even as, a, as an emerging young adult, there was always, a, because of my awareness, there was always a, a firm solidarity with like, look, equity matters, access matters, you know, liberation is worth pursuing. And so that, that was, I was a teacher, that was, that was with me, it's, it's been with me. Though once Kimberly and I got to talking about family and walking down childhood memory lanes, she also mentioned kind of in passing, actually, a really tough turn her childhood took in the years after that competition. When she was 14 years old, she and her siblings were separated from both of their parents. I asked if she wanted to talk about that. Um, you know, my, my mother really fell into a really deep depression, and she thought that the, the safest place for her to be would be away. So mm-hmm. she got an apartment and... and she didn't really, she didn't make a plan to accommodate us, my sisters and I. And then my dad, you know, he really tried to figure out how to, how to be present, but he, he medicated the collapse of, of his family with crack cocaine, mm-hmm. which was still, you know, very much a part of the landscape of the North Side of Milwaukee in the 90s. And so he was, he was alive, you know, but he was gone. And so, um, yeah, by the time I was 17, I was, you know, couch surfing and figuring out how to how to like land on the couch of, you know, the parents of my friends. And, uh, and I was saved in a lot of ways by guardian angels, teachers and guidance counselors and a woman who I still call Umi, who became surrogate parent figures who Mm. believed in me. Mm. What did that mean for you? What, What did that, how do you think that part of your life shaped you? I think that, I think that suffering is really fertile soil for cultivating compassion and tenderness and grace for people. And I think that of all of the all of the professional, all of the creative work that I've done, all of the community building that I've done, it's it's really in alignment with all that I've learned about um, about giving creating space and, and learning how to forgive and learning how to recognize that um, that we are none of us are heroes or villains, right? We are 
We do things that are heroic. We do things that someone else might perceive as, as, as villainous in a moment. And uh, that the only way that we can, that we survive is by extending the grace to people that we need, that we need extended to us. And, and I think the only way that I arrived at that is from having to learn how to continuously practice, you know, grace and tenderness. Kimberly's vintage store in Philly, or shoppable museum, as she prefers to call it, it's not her first foray into socially conscious fashion business. In 2017, she created a clothing manufacturer called Grant Boulevard, also based out of Philly. And its mission is to create jobs for women who have been incarcerated or who have experienced homelessness by making sustainably sourced garments. And really, with this business, Kimberly just wants to make fashion consumers change our whole relationship to the clothes we wear. You talked about this a little before, but I just want to prod you to do it again about what we, as consumers, coming into a shop, th- looking at our garments um, and thinking about the relationship to labor, um, what you're trying to get consumers to think that's about. That's a beautiful question. Because that's the work, right? When you walk into Black Ivy, you're going to see this visual story of these figures that, these thought leaders that have been so is so central to how I've come to read the world. When you walk into Grant Boulevard, you're going to see a cost formula. I want you to recognize that when you are buying something, that there's a formula that determines what you're paying for it. And for a lot of companies, there's no sensibility around labor. We really don't even know how much very much of anything costs, right? You know, most of us don't realize that when you buy a garment that's $5, that garment was made where where someone, often an adolescent girl, in the case of the Uyghurs in China, who are absolute slaves. And for those of us who say that we align ourselves with with freedom, for those of us who say that we we believe in human rights, when our garments are and are sitting antithetically to that, we are we are destroying our our moral high ground. What I hope consumers will think about in choosing Grant Boulevard is that, We're trying to build something that's replicable. All across this country, we have people who are saying we need to address crime. We have very few people who are thinking about how do we solve for poverty. And so I'm hoping, I'm I'm optimistic that this project of partnering with cities and partnering with nonprofits to identify folk, disproportionately black and brown women who have been neglected at every turn, that we can provide a safe culture to begin again, and that we can get consumers to invest differently in their own cities, in their own neighbors, in a way that feels and looks beautiful. Well, that is an inspiring thought and a great place to stop. I really appreciate this. I am going to have to shop your shop before I get out of here. Let's go. It's looking right, okay? It's, uh, it's, it's really an inspiring story, and I thank you for the time, Kimberly. Thank you so much. Kimberly McGon is the owner of Black Ivy Thrift and the clothing manufacturer Grant Boulevard, both businesses based in Philadelphia. I spoke to her as part of our Black History Is Now series. We're talking to people who have been provoked and inspired by something in Black history and have set out to bring that history forward into the future. You can find previous segments by going to notesfromamerica.org and look for the specials tab. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and at Notes with Kai on Instagram. Mixing this week by Mike Kutchman and Alan Gofinski. Theme music by Jerry Paul. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Suzanne Gaber, Regina Dahir, Rahima Nasa, 
David Norville, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer. And I'm Janae Pierre, sitting in this week for Kai Wright. Thanks for listening.